0: this episode of ad history is brought to you by listeners like you contributing through the crowdfunding platform patreon learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash ad history podcast and the exclusive benefits that await you for your generous support join us in the effort to keep creating the ad history you deserve by visiting patreon.com forward slash ad history podcast thank you
1: Have you ever wondered what it would be like if Rome was ruled by an emperor who wasn't really Roman at all? Or how the Parthian Empire met its demise? Well, have we got a story for you.
2: This is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now, here are your hosts, Paul K. DeCostanzo and Patrick Foote.
1: And what do via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DeCostanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, spring is upon us, as is a new decade. How are you this evening, your time.
0: I'm good. I wish spring was upon us, and in theory, spring is here, but it's still really cold and miserable here in the UK. Um, I swear this time a year ago it was quite nice outside still. But like now we're allowed to go outside and the weather's rubbish. We weren't allowed to go outside last year at this time of year, but hey that's the British weather. But Paul, how are you? Are you excited to carry on this next decade of E D history?
1: I certainly am, and you know, you're talking about British weather. Something I really do intend to do at least once in my life is have my own experience tanning in the English rain.
0: Oh, trust me, you're not missing much of it. You're not <laughs> missing much at all.
1: Well, before we get into the ground rules and our really awesome subjects, which in, in this case today, you're talking about Elagabalus. As far as yours truly, the Sassanid storm is about to hit the Middle East, and the Parthian Empire, which is going to be a lot of fun. This is a decade in which amazing and big things happen that have tremendous consequence for a very long time. But before we get into all that and the ground rules, something we'd like to do is at the top here, we'd like to thank our two new patrons that have begun Contributing to the AD History podcast are now members of Odo's ADFight Army. And we'd like to thank Fiona and Martin, who are joining our other amazingly gracious and generous patrons, Kevin, James, Atomic Straw, and Insert Something Witty here.
0: Definitely. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, Ke- uh, Kevin. Thank you, James. Thank you, Atomic Straw. And thank you, insert something witty here. Clearly, we're not witty enough to insert something there. But thank you guys <laughs> so much for the support on Patreon. Seriously, it helps out so much. Um, obviously, I run a run a Patreon for Name Explain as well. And Patreon offers creative support in a way unlike any other form. It's better than advertising in my eyes, because you're getting you have being supported by the people who care about your content most, people who love it and enjoy it. And a lot of people donating a small amount on a regular basis helps in a huge, huge way. And as you hinted towards, Paul, there's some really good bonuses over on Patreon. Recently, Paul, we have decided to release Director's Cut episodes of the, uh, the podcast over on Patreon. So there's some extra content in there for you guys to enjoy. Paul, you pick and choose what stuff the, the patrons get. And you get it a couple days early as well. There'll be a link to the Patreon down in the description for this episode. And just go check it out for yourself. It'll help out in a huge, huge way. And Paul, before we started recording, you told me that something else is almost so close to finally coming out on the Patreon. Is that true?
1: That is absolutely true. We are on the precipice. At the time of recording, I believe we're only a few days away from volume one of AD History's Best of BC where Patrick and myself choose a smattering of some of our favorite, most important, and what we think is the most interesting events of history prior to the last 2000 years. And believe me, we're not just talking about human history. We're not just talking about (laughs) the history of this planet or its solar system, but we literally take it to the very beginning, that point of infinite, density in which the greatest explosion of our universe the one that formed it as we now believe took place
0: now am i correct in saying paul that in the director's cut i'm a replicant
1: that's on a need to know basis <laughs> uh, that's something i can't confirm or deny
0: <laughs> on the non-director's cuts i'm not a replicant but apparently in the director's cut i am a replicant
1: yeah you know, you know what can usually <laughs> tell them apart is your replicant is a He's a bit more profane <laughs> yeah he has, he has a really foul mouth that's usually the well, dead giveaway
0: you have to check out the patreon version to find out for yourself guys but yeah as we mentioned uh, just a bit of a silly just some blade runner director's cut humor there i know that you guys enjoy that there'll be a link in the comments uh just three dollars a month on the patreon gets you the exclusive podcasts early and also the director's cut versions
1: it certainly does so head on over to patreon.com slash 80 history podcast But with that out of the way, it is time for our necessary, obligatory, now legendary, AD History Podcast Ground Rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that were important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country.
0: Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So first of all, I want to say what I'm not talking about in this episode. I'm not talking about China. Um, (laughs) I, I I enjoyed my time in China. But over these last four episodes, Paul can attest to this. It's kind of made me pull my hair out a bit. I'm stepping away from China for a bit. The Free Kingdoms are doing their thing by now, I imagine. That's all good with them. I'm back in Rome for now. And over in Rome, its golden age is well and truly behind us. And in the upcoming decades, there will be a few faces of note in regards to their emperors. But we're diving into the depths of the lesser-known emperors of the empire. And by 221 AD, Rome was under the rule of one of its strangest emperors and his short rule would run until 222 AD, when, surprise, surprise, he would be assassinated. The rule of Emperor Elagabalus is interesting to look into, however, as it shows us just how much Rome was starting to sink from the days of the Pax Romana. So uh, I just want to uh, share a bit of ground rules and a bit of the origins of Elagabalus, because it's kind of important to know this sort of thing. And Ele Gabalus was believed to be born circa 203 AD. So you can already gather he's quite young by this time. And he was born with the name of Varius Avitius Bassanius. And he was not a native of Rome. And of course, native Rome emperors weren't a new thing by now. But he was born in Emesa in Syria. And this is the modern city of Homs, which is obviously still in Syria to this day. And he came from a family of high priests who didn't worship the uh, pantheon of Roman gods, such Greek gods, but they worshipped a local sun god who was known as Baal. But this local god, but this god was also known locally as Elagabal, and from his name Elagabalus, and this god's name of Elagabal, I'm sure you can understand where he got that title from. And despite being so far removed from Rome, he had connections to the city and to the upper crust of a Roman society.
1: Something I'm curious about is how much do you know about this religion that he was a part of?
0: Not really much came up on the subject. I imagine we probably only really know of it from others' writings, but not much came up about it. It just, it it was different. It seems that it was centered around this one god, as opposed to a pantheon of gods like Rome did.
1: Okay, I was curious about that. If there was any additional information to kind of get an idea to see more of where this guy was coming from yeah. but, but they but they are monotheistic
0: i think they might have been to an extent yes well and these guys worship just the one god there might be more gods in the wider religion but elagabalus came from this one from a family that worshipped just the local sun god elagabal as i said though he did have connections to the roman empire and most noticeably the current emperor at the time emperor caracalla was his cousin and in 217 uh-huh. a.d Caracalla was of course murdered his usurper masserinius took over and paul i believe you're going to be covering this somewhat
1: it does come up and i'm going to tease it for the second segment but the way he was assassinated is utterly ridiculous we're going to talk about that in the next segment but i just want to tease it because i think everybody is going to get a laugh on this one
0: <laughs> glad i didn't cover it in more detail in my end here so um <laughs> With this usurper, so he wasn't a uh, he wasn't actually a descent of the Roman Empire. So, and he wasn't that well supported. So he didn't have much support as emperor. And Basinius, as he was born this time, did have more support this time because he was a direct descendant. He was a cousin of Caracalla. and his mother and grandmother, as I mentioned, they were high priestesses in Syria. They used their religious powers and connections to lobby for him to be emperor. And they also claimed that he wasn't Caracalla's cousin, but his illegitimate son. So they said, yeah, this is actually his son, which is kind of not the best thing to do. But it seemed to work as at age 14 in 218 AD, he became emperor. This is
1: like a bad daytime soap opera. Yeah. So, I mean, It really, really
0: is. Yeah. Like I said, we're so far removed from the Pax Romana now and like, it just shows you how quickly it's like to go downhill. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, just
1: look at this. This is a, a total byproduct of how far we've come.
0: Yeah. And upon taking rule of the empire, he actually took on the name Antonius, as many emperors have done. But shortly after this, he adopted the name Elagabalus for himself in honor of the local Syrian sun god Elagabal.
1: This is interesting. This is just my thoughts on the question. And I'm looking back on it, and we, you know, we were talking last time when we were talking about the death rattle of the Han Dynasty in terms of its collapse. And granted, they were on much further down the decline. They were about to cease to exist. Rome is not nearly there yet. But at the same time, who in their right mind could possibly accept a 14-year-old emperor is it any wonder why Rome seems to keep getting embroiled in their weekly civil war at this point? <laughs> this, this is insanity because it's not a monarchy like we would know it or, or, or how the Hans would know it. Because Rome did their own thing and in their own way they were somewhat sophisticated, if not also terribly brutal. But politically they were quite advanced and the fact that they're accepting this at all truly reeks. They truly, he has no business being the emperor at 14 years old.
0: No, and you mentioned China there. And when I thought about that, I was like, huh, who else had a child emperor? Oh, yeah, China did. They had quite a few. They had one with Wang Meng and they had one towards the end of their, um, towards the end of the Han dynasty as well. And it's just, it's never, ever a good sign to have a young emperor. I don't think there's any point in history where, like, they're, they're, they're well, I'm sure there, I'm probably a is yeah. But yeah. No, there probably is occasionally, but yeah, there probably is occasionally. I just remember in the Meiji Restoration in Japan, I believe he was quite young. I might be wrong on that point. Emperor Meiji, uh, I believe he was quite a young man, but um, it's very rarely a good sign. It, it It's almost just like a caricature at this point, like, oh, you got a kid emperor? Hmm, okay, then how's this gonna go?
1: Yeah, we we always we always know that they're just a tool for somebody else's interest, yeah, yeah.
0: And, and that's spoiler alert, that's kind of the case here as well because. Yeah. Well, kind of, because Elagabalus, he his time in power while only four years was something something else for, for if we were to believe the stories. And in power, Elagabalus broke away with all tradition in Rome. He had no regard for Roman customs or cultures. Why would he? He came from Syria, like he hadn't really spent much time in Rome before that, and he refused. worship the roman gods and only cared for his his own that aforementioned syrian sun god he actually tried to convert the entire empire to worship baal the syrian sun god like god he tried to completely upheave it and this included building temples to the sun god on palatine hill and he actually had statues transported from syria to rome for this god it sounds absolutely crazy he was also incredibly extravagant in the many things he did. Like he had chariots pulled by elephants and tigers race up Vascon Hill for his own amusement. And he loved to treat his subjects in bizarre ways too. Good for we got that explicit label because some of that stuff's going to come in here. And
1: oh yeah, we're earning yeah. it
0: today. We are earning it today. And at banquets, he would often like replace the food with wooden or stone replicas. So when uh, his guests tucked in, obviously that wouldn't go too well. And he did just sort of see, he loved... He seemed to enjoy seeing people confused and see their reactions to things. And this, he'll get a kick out of this just seeing him try to eat wooden food. And he also distributed gifts to the people of Rome, not just his sort of like elites, like the ones who introduced the meals, but all all of Rome, probably the plebeians as well. And these gifts would vary in so many ways. Sometimes he would give out steaks or like have gold coins showering from the streets. And other times he would uh, give people dead dogs. And this was once again, just to see the reactions from people, to see how they would react to just waking up to a dead dog or waking up to gold coin showering from the street. He was just a truly, truly bizarre person.
1: He sounds incredibly immature.
0: Yes, that, that is probably a really good way to put it. He does sound incredibly immature. That word hadn't entered my vocabulary for this one. However, what comes next probably isn't that immature at least in the way we associate the word immature with as in being childlike because this next part isn't childlike at all because what he's probably most known for is his sexual desires and his just his sex life in general
1: his carnal appetites
0: yes which is far from immature and he was a deeply sexual man or should i be saying a deeply sexual woman because Many actually argue that Elagabalus could be considered transgender by today's standards. And there are stories ranging from him pretending to be a woman via cross-dressing, and he even offered half his empire to anyone who could change his genitals. He put out a thing saying, if any physician or doctor can change my genitals to be that of a female, you can have half my empire. He really did want to be a woman. And this, of course, meant he enjoyed the company of both men, and women and there are stories that he opened the imperial baths to the public and his main reason for doing this was to observe as many people naked as possible and one source also said he never slept with the same person twice except for his wife and who his wife was or who one of his wives were is one of the things that shocked Rome the most he decided the only woman fit to marry him to be his wife was a Vestal Virgin, and Paul, we've talked about the Vestal Virgin in the past, haven't we?
1: Yes, indeed. I believe the biological mother, legendarily, of Romulus and Remus was supposed to be a Vestal Virgin, or was taken from there. She was a Vestal Virgin, or she was somehow associated with them, but once again, that is a huge no-no. Vestal Virgins
0: yeah it's in the name it's right
1: in the name it's totally unambiguous unless of course you're the mother of romulus and remus apparently but here we are
0: yeah so like i said in the name so there's one person you're not allowed to sleep with in rome it's a Vestal version and of course elagabalus he did multiple times he was a very hedonistic decadent emperor and however something i want to stress is that while many of the things he did they actually wouldn't be that shocking by today's standards, like wishing to be a woman or cross dressing. That's not a big deal now. But we always say we talk about history like it's another country. And in high society, conservative Rome, this would have been absolutely ludicrous. So when I say he did all this crazy stuff, and he was weird, I mean, weird by Roman standards. And a lot of the other stuff he did was weird by our standards as well. But stuff like this, I'm not saying that wanting to be a woman being born a man and want to be a woman, that's not weird by any means. That that's completely fine.
1: Once again, this goes right back into the ground rules where yeah. it's not really about viewing it from our perspective and casting that on to the past. It's about understanding their world as they understood it and all the rules that existed in that way. So
0: just got a list of from various sources, just some other things here is said He did. And some of these are sexual. Some of these are just plain weird. Some of them are pretty damn funny. Even by today's standards, I would get a (laughs) kick out of these things. Sure. So I'm just going to list these off. Of course, of course. He banned one of his lovers from the palace for not being able to get an erection. Oh, (laughs) uh, okay. He supposedly wore a dried bull's penis on his head for, uh, I think, probably some sort of aphrodisiac.
1: I've never heard of that one, but okay.
0: He hosted sort of strange-themed parties. And sometimes these themes would be color-themed. Like you had to, uh, everything had to be blue. You had to wear blue. You had to sort of paint yourself blue. Or then the next day, oh, you have to be green. It'd be like blue one day, green another, red another. This isn't in my written sources here, but in one book I read at one of his parties, he demanded all his guests make a new sauce. Like you've got to make a new sauce for the food just, just with what you have on the table. He just did... Really odd stuff like that. And another way he liked to theme parties wasn't by colour, but by deformities and physical appearances. So he'd like to have parties of just blind people, or of just deaf people, or of just obese people. And there's one story where, and this is bad for me for laughing at this, but one story says that he invited eight fat men to his palace and watched them all try and sit on the same couch just for his own enjoyment
1: he sounds like like the epitome of the worst frat boy in history
0: that is such a good way to put it, it is so frat like and some as i was reading this someone else came to mind for me i'll mention it at the end here but other people have made that connection with a certain fictional character that came to mind for me he was having toga parties when togas were still in fashion i imagine
1: <laughs> <laughs> that that's a good point i never even thought yeah. about that
0: a couple of things he supposedly did he'll make guests sit on chairs filled with air and at random times throughout the evening he'll make slaves burst these chairs just to see the reaction of the guests on them which is like i said kind of funny to this day and even sometimes uh when guests would get drunk at his house they'd wake up in a locked room with a tamed bear or lion or some other dangerous animal And literally, that's just the tip of the icebergs of things he supposedly did. He was an absolute... Like I said, a lot of the things wouldn't be that controversial by today's standards. Uh, Except for the one you just mentioned. Yeah, but but I I, I don't think anyone wants to wake up in a room with a tiger or bear with a massive hangover in 2021. I still think that's pretty odd by today's standards.
1: And remarkably cruel, (laughs) Mm -hmm. both to the person and the animal. But here we are. Really, Elagabalus. Makes Caligula and <laughs> Commodus look like Boy Scouts. Yeah, I mean, really, it really does. And I can't even say the fact that he's gonna get knocked off—spoiler—was necessarily a bad thing, because no, th- this could not stand. The fact that it even happened in the first place
0: is yeah, like it, this is like you yeah, know this is it was only a hundred years ago we had the likes of hadrian this, this is someone in the same position as hadrian and trajan and augustus these sort of great beloved emperors this is this, he's got the same power well, kind of yeah, in theory as people like that and this is what's become of the empire it's being run by it's being run by a spoiled brat basically it seems like
1: yeah basically an autocratic frat boy who mm-hmm. has more power in his hands vested in him By via by his position, than many modern rulers even do within the systems that they work, because Mm -hmm. if the emperor wanted something, generally the emperor got it. And with such a leader-dominated society, we talked about the concept of a leader-dominated or leader-oriented society back in episode one when we were talking about Caligula. And the fact that at that time, just given the changes that had occurred, it was also a wounded political body. Right now, Rome has a chronic wound in this position. Yeah. And to say that they're a leader-dominated society and Elagabalus is their leader is utterly baffling by any standard you can possibly imagine. It is utterly ridiculous and totally unacceptable in every way you can possibly imagine it's just it absolutely blows my mind
0: <laughs> yeah and speaking of chronic wounds that brings us very nicely onto Elagabalus' assassination and and as mentioned it was uh, Elagabalus' mother and grandmother and they were the ones who wanted him in power and they felt he was suddenly to too unwieldy with his power and it was specifically his grandmother uh, julia mesa who wanted this to end they're like oh my god what have we done and they made him adopt his 12 year old cousin alexander as heir slash son and we talked about roman adoption in the past it it is not the same yeah it's not the same as adoption as we for yeah here we have an 18 17 year old adopting his 12 year old cousin as his son just don't don't imagine it as adoption as we know it
1: and treated as if he is their biological son roman society Mm -hmm, doesn't mm -hmm. make those distinctions which i think is fascinating
0: It's it's really interesting stuff. And Alexander, this 12-year-old, grew to be actually really popular with the Senate and the people, despite only being 12. He was just really liked and enjoyed and just seen as a good egg, really. And this, of course, angered Elagabalus, and he planned to murder his cousin slash heir. And this caused outrage, and people caught wind of this planned assassination, including our good old friends, the Praetorian Guard. They turned on their emperor, unsurprisingly, shock (laughs) alert shock (laughs) alert Mm -hmm. so yes the praetorian guard felt nah we're done with this guy and he uh elagabalus was stabbed to death and his body unceremoniously tossed into the tiber and he just floated away and all of this happened while his grandmother just watched on and this of course meant her preferred grandchild alexander got onto the throne of rome and he became severus alexander and he ruled from 222 a.d to 235 AD. So Elagabalus died at the age of 18 and his cousin, Sash's took over from there. So from 14 years old to 18 year old, this kid was emperor and he lived a very extravagant life during that time. And he's definitely one of the lesser known emperors of Rome. However, once you unearth his story, it's truly fascinating. And while it's easy to just brandish him as weird and crazy, there's more to it. A lot of his desires and wishes could be considered ideas of trans people by modern standards, as we mentioned. And some modern commentators have even dubbed him slash her Rome's transgender emperor. And he also allowed women into the Senate on occasions. Uh, I think it was prostitutes he let in, but it's still women in the Senate. And that's something no other emperor would allow and perhaps in modern times we should admire some of the things he did for women and his views on sex and gender some of his views on sex and especially his views on gender as mentioned could be seen as incredibly progressive in today's world imagine imagine a transgender king today that would still be quite a shocking thing or a transgender queen today especially you know coming from a country with a king and queen I I think that'd be quite impressive and like to see Rome possibly doing it that it's a very It could be seen as very progressive, as we said, we like to keep things by our standards. However, he did do a lot of other stuff, which is undeniably batshit crazy. Like Some of that can't be considered okay by today's standards. And he's clearly played a role in popular culture too. As I hinted towards, he really reminded me of a certain fictional character. And I'm not the first person to compare his life and his actions with a certain sociopathic teen king of uh, Westeros. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Another king, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. A king who took pleasure in the suffering of others and his death, spoilers, was orchestrated by a grandmother, so a more beloved grandchild could rule instead. Like, he's basically real life Joffrey, unlike so many parallels between, and we've all, we've talked in the past between the wall. And Hadrian's Wall. We've talked Game of Friends keeps on coming up more and more as this podcast progresses. You realize George was very inspired by the history books. It, it certainly
1: would seem so. But insofar as he would be considered progressive from the perspective of Roman society at the time, it doesn't sound like he was doing it in some great ideological crusade.
0: Yeah, I guess that's a very good way to put it. Yeah, he wasn't doing it to be progressive; he was doing it because that's just how he wanted to do things.
1: He very much liked getting a rise out of people, being unexpected. He definitely seemed to love attention, and he definitely likes, you know, giving the big middle finger to any sort of established mores and social norms and those things that were expected of him. But at the same time, given this, what it really does appear on the whole a general immaturity in terms of his attitude and and what would be realistically expected of not simply as a Roman emperor but a competent and proper leader he was really putting a target on his own back and if he didn't recognize that I would be I wouldn't be surprised but it was certainly disappointing because he was basically writing his own death warrant
0: yeah that's a very good way to put it you can't Despite, like you said, Rome's still got a few hundred years under its belt, about a hundred years or so under its belt here. And even though we're, we're way past its golden age, you still can't be emperor of Rome and do those things and not think you have to suffer consequences. People who've gotten ki- emperors have gotten killed for far less in Rome.
1: Oh, most definitely. So my first really big question here is, how can we test the veracity of these stories? Who, who's telling them? And I'm curious if we know who they are, if we have some idea of the sources, as to if they would have any motivation to paint him in a far more exaggerated light.
0: So uh, most of the information we know about Elagabalus is from a collection of biographies known as the Augustan History, which is from, uh, obviously it's from after this time period. It was written by, uh, his entry was supposedly written by Aelius Lampridius, not sure if i'm pronouncing that right and we're not even sure if that's his actual name oh. but it was what that might be a sooner, whoever it was and we know it's believed that he was quite sensationalist in the way he wrote because he started his entry on elagabalus by saying the life of elagabalus antonius also called various i should never have put in writing hoping that it might not be known that he was emperor of the romans so That's how his entry in his book of biographies begins. So it kind of makes you question, hmm, they clearly, even the historians didn't want Elagabalus' rule in Rome to be remembered. So that has to start from somewhere. I mean, we can imagine that a lot of these stories aren't true or at least exaggerated to a great extent, but these sort of things don't happen for no reason. Like there's got to be some sort of grain of truth in some of this to make him... This figure in the history books. There's got to be some sort of truth in there. Whether it was these things don't start from nothing, like there has to be some truth in this, at least I think so anyway.
1: You would think that there usually is. I mean, anytime you're trying to slander somebody, if you're really good at it, and this is something that is taught in terms of history of propaganda, things of that nature, that the most effective propaganda are when you mix in something that it seems plausible that seems within established characters and motivations and uh, modus operandi of an individual, then you kind of sprinkle in the exaggerated in order to make it appear as if it is more plausible, as if there is greater veracity, because there's going to be an element to it, especially in the audience, that a piece of propaganda would be intended for. And I use the term propaganda quite loosely in this case, Mm. because... Propaganda, in so far as creating something that is intended for a specific audience to mislead them from the truth, to come to a conclusion that is in accordance with whatever your interest may be, and so when you mix a solidly plausible with a sprinkling of the extreme, that's usually when it's very effective. So I agree, there probably has to be some kernel of truth in this, and uh, something else I'm kind of wondering about. Rome was a heavily patriarchal society. It all, you know, when it comes to the family, it started with the patrofamilia, and it all went from there. But from what I understand from you, in terms of Elagabalus and the culture that he came from in Syria, his mother and grandmother really did appear to be the major driving influences in his life. They definitely seemed to be the ones that were calling the shots in the family. And so naturally, you are in Rome in this well established and well known patriarchal society to a society that definitely is more matriarchal, certainly by comparison. And how do you feel that that influenced
0: him? This is only my own theory. I haven't got anything to so back this up, but it's just, it was something I noticed. I thought it was very interesting how this Roman emperor, who seemed to have been so fascinated in wanting to be a woman came from a society where women played a larger role than they did in Rome anyway. We know that his mother and grandmother were high priestesses. It made me thought. I wonder that's why he wanted to be a woman, or at least had some sort of, showed female qualities more so than other Roman emperors, like supposedly cross-dressing, like supposedly wanting to have a uh, sex change, as we would call it in modern days. Maybe he thought to himself, women are the ones in power, I'm in power. ergo." I must be a woman. It's, it's definitely just my own hypothesis and our own thinking. But it's a really interesting thing. It's just you kind of put two and two together and think, hmm, he, he, he wanted to be a woman. He came from a place that uh, valued women much more than Rome. I wonder if there's a connection to it. It's just, it's an interesting thing to think about. There's definitely no uh, correct answer in this one. It's just an interesting thing to think about, for sure, Paul.
1: It is an interesting dichotomy in any respect, even if all of these things that you, you've mentioned about him were not the case, it would still be a very interesting question to ask because it Mm. would be a a huge change going from something that is very, very different than what you grew up with and and what you were accustomed to. And this is something interesting. You always kind of have to take this stuff right here with a grain of salt, and I'm sure our listeners will understand why I say this. So apparently there was an oracle in his home province in, in Syria that once portended that he should expect a short life and a violent death do you think perhaps and granted this is all timing and and whatnot but do you think it might explain why he lived to such an extreme that he really did seem to embody the whole YOLO thing (laughs) you know up to about 11 on the scale of 1 to 10
0: yeah so um I think we need to remember that he was a deeply religious person. He came from a very religious family, very religious part of the world. So an oracle telling him at that time in history that you're going to have a short life and violently die, you're going to put a lot more stock into it than like me or you going to a carnival and getting a palm reading telling us that, you know, you, go, it, you he's going to put a lot more stock into that. And I kind of do think there probably is some stock in it because it makes sort of sense in the world. He did die young and he lived a very extreme life. And Paul, oh, this is quite a morbid thing to think, I suppose, but if you knew, they always say, if you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do? Like, not just you, but like if you knew your time was up at a set time, you would want to do something a bit extreme and extravagant. Do something worthwhile. You want to just sort of sit around if you knew your days were numbered.
1: Well, I guess the answer to all of that is exactly how much time, hypothetically, I would have left. A day is hardly hardly enough to, to do exactly what you want to do. I mean, depending if you knew you were on borrowed time, hmm. what I can say without a doubt is, yeah, I think it's undeniable that most people, not everybody, but a lot of people would then probably take certain steps to make sure that they at least did something that they had always wanted to do, and making it a far greater priority than it would be if they didn't have the information of their impending demise. And it's kind of hard to imagine anybody would do differently. So, But any time I hear these stories about figures of note, especially in classical antiquity, when we're talking about the Mediterranean world, and oracles definitely pop up from time to time. You know, the oracle at Delphi was... Has had a very memorable prediction insofar as say Socrates went. So we you know we see this in the, the Greco-Roman world, but I would say that it's entirely possible that it might have influenced him. But you know that's when we're getting into pure speculation territory. Yeah. But if indeed this is the case and he had this knowledge going into his time as emperor, it's kind of hard to believe it would not affect his decision making and his behavior in some way because in that case it would be almost inexplicable to imagine how it couldn't have it's so human
0: yeah yeah clearly what he wanted to do with his life was be a menace and he also had the ability to do that because somehow he ended up as emperor of the biggest empire in the world at that time
1: as we wrap this segment here and you begin putting together the various building blocks in Roman history in the decades that were leading up to this, and what's going to happen in the next decade, which is going to be the start of the crisis of the 3rd century, which is one of the major headlines of world history in the 3rd century AD. And especially with Roman, of course, we will be covering and exploring that comprehensively not to the exclusion of anything else but you know we're chasing the headline here mm. especially after the segment that I'm going to be doing coming up in many ways and how matters will transpire it's amazing that it will take this long to reach the kind of crisis that Rome is about to experience beginning in the following decade
0: it just shows you how far, like I said, how far Rome has fallen and things are going to go south. And one last thing I just wanted to mention, kind of random, but just something yeah. I realised, Elagabalus would have made a very, I don't say good, but he would have been very popular on YouTube. Imagine his prank <laughs> oh, boy He would have been like a Logan Paul of his time, like doing prank channels, like doing challenges and pranks, like dropping dead dogs on everyone prank challenge. Like I was just thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> he would have been on that.
1: He was almost the steve of his time. You know, he, he would have been a star on Jackass. Mm-hmm. Or, or or even worse, he would be a star on TikTok. Um, yes. Yeah. He seemed to love attention. He was very much immature, but he definitely did seem to have more layers to him in terms of who he was and his influences. And Patrick, I I, I got to say, in, in reflection, what was it like researching this guy?
0: It was eye-opening, I would say, to some points. I just want to wrap up by saying, Elagabalus, we hardly knew ye, what, <laughs> what only we could have known if you weren't killed, if only you ruled for just another year, maybe even another 10 years, what would have happened, Well, we hardly knew ye.
1: This is true enough. And us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini.
2: This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. As well as, of course, tgnreview.com/slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you. By exploring the AD History podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick.
0: Now, Paul, it's your time to introduce us to a new player on the scene. Uh, We've spent a lot of time in Rome and we've spent quite a bit of time in China. We've looked at other empires as well, but some new people are coming to play here. And from what I've gathered, they're going to be quite big players going forward. So,
1: I think it's fair to say that if I were to title this segment anything, it is the Sassanian Storm, or the Sassanid, if you will. And yes, this is a tremendous juncture in world history that we're about to discuss. In this segment, it is in fact truly, even though it has much to do with the Sassanid, a history of three powers. Two of which are on the decline, one of which is declining faster than the other, and the third that is about to storm onto the scene. This emerging power is known today as the Sassanid Empire, the last great Persian power prior to the Muslim conquest four centuries from where we are discussing now. Yet, more than anything, perhaps the greatest theme of our chat today here. Is opportunity. When you learn about the various major sweeps of Persian civilization, it is self-evidently stacks up right next to those like Egypt, Rome, China, and a select number of others in that tremendous pantheon from all over the world. Indeed, modern Iranians still greatly celebrate the accomplishments and influence of Persia. Throughout its history, in its various incarnations, and the Sassanids are central to that legacy. With that being said, I think it is best to set the scene. April 28, 224 A.D., the Battle of Degan. in a location still unclear to this day, though within what was known at the time. The Parthian Empire is where the Sassanid Empire was indeed born. At Hermosdigan, the forces of Ardashir I proceeded to decisively defeat the army of Artabanus VI, who is said to have had a cavalry numbering 10,000. What is certain is that according to the rock reliefs commissioned by Ardashir I, is that the Battle of again? is the place and occasion where the newly forming Sassanian Empire was truly born. And I mentioned that this is a story of three powers. And those three powers are, of course, the Parthians, the Romans, and the coming Sassanids. And throughout AD history, the Parthians have been occasional interlocutors in the the events that we've explored mostly filling the role of a thorn in the side of rome's strategic ambitions though to what extent over the last two centuries parthia presented a genuine existential threat to rome is often and hotly debated the parthians have not quite been a foil to rome in the middle east in their many skirmishes to outright wars with the Roman rivals over the years, they certainly landed their share of punches. But what is undeniable at this point is that Parthia's stability stands on its last leg. Their near five centuries long existence is about to conclude.
0: It is interesting that we haven't really got to chat about Parthia at any point. We've, I think we've dedicated an episode to anything that's happened in Parthia.
1: Like I said, they've been kind of an Occasional interlocutor. They've been relevant. We've mentioned them, but they haven't come to the Mm. spotlight in the way that they are about to here in our segment today. Mm. And we need to understand more about the Parthian disposition at this time and their striking vulnerabilities. And there are quite a few factors that really go into this, Patrick. So from what it is known about the structure of the Parthian governance, it is often described as decentralized. And by decentralized, I mean even though there was an emperor, a sitting autocrat mm. that at the very least was considered nominally the head of Parthia, a lot of the power that was distributed throughout what we know as the Parthian Empire went much, much more towards city-type states. And one of the reasons why this is the case is because in in terms of the, the Persian and Iranian progenitors... They were largely nomadic going further back centuries, but it's something that definitely stayed with them into the incarnation during the Parthian era. After increasing urbanization of numerous wealthy city-states in Parthia, Parthia itself was not a strong centralized authority. Indeed, as many of these satrap city-states gained more wealth, the greater autonomy and sovereignty they expected over their own affairs which is not a new concept, usually when, whether it be a country or a city or individuals tend to gain more monetary wealth or significant means, they generally also want a greater piece of the pie and a greater call of things. And depending on the form of government that exists, that can be more positive or negative depending on the situation, you're going to say?
0: It's just saying um, ancient Greece has coming to mind in regards to the city-states that had their own power. Just It very, sounds a lot like ancient Greece.
1: There's definitely some truth to that. The only difference is that Policies, as they were called, were were generally sovereign. Mm. So they, they didn't really fall under a confederation of any type. Okay, yeah. So they were rivals. But it's the same kind of idea. Athens was its own city-state that called its own shots, was very wealthy and had grand ambitions and created major contributions to world history. Mm. But imagine that, but under a greater umbrella. Yeah. Where you have the autocrat at the top.
0: So when it comes to the historical sources for the internal affairs of Parthia and the Sassians, who are we largely dealing with here? Well,
1: there's actually a number of them. A lot of them, interestingly enough in this period, are coming from Cassius Dio, who was also alive during this time, obviously, because he was writing, Mm. and you also have Herodian. While they give very useful accounts in terms of Parthia's conduct in the greater world and certainly relative to Rome, there were definitely gaps in their knowledge in terms of the internal domestic dynamics that would be happening in Parthia. That, in terms of sources, especially when we start getting into the Sassanids as well, you're talking about sources that are writing about these things centuries later. And there's a number of them, and Mm. some of which I think we'll talk about when we get to the Sassanids specifically, but it's a good question. And it's also something that, in terms of perspective, is going to be extremely interesting as we get into the Sassanids. But I digress. When it comes to the Parthian emperor and he wished to undertake some sort of military campaign, it was his challenge to rally the various nobles that ran these city-states. So basically, he had to put on his own political campaign to bring them on board. He may have had nominal power, but that's very, very different than effective de facto power. Realpolitik, in its own way, kind of weaving its thread in, in all of these things. And... I've heard debates over, really, who ruled who. Was it the emperor over his nobles that were in charge of these city-states, or was it vice versa? So you kind of understand the difficult dynamics here. We're not talking about an emperor that really has the ability to exercise dominant power.
0: It's not absolute monarchies, we'd call it, I guess, By that, it's not an absolute power.
1: No, no certainly, certainly not in practicality, mm. to be sure.
0: It's almost a bit like a, like a parliament of some sort. You've got to get like enough people on your side, of enough elected people of power on your side to do anything.
1: In, in its own way, there's certainly a dynamic there. Obviously, mm. all of these players were never elected. and Oh, no, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's the same kind of idea. You need to rally people to your cause. You don't have the, the realistic power to make them do what you want to do, regardless of whatever justification yeah. you may have. So by the time of the 220s, Parthia had been weakened by its more recent conflicts with Rome, namely its impotent and ill-fated backing of Percinius Niger and his struggle for succession with Septimius Severus. And he was based in Syria. We talked about that in the mm-hmm. emergence of Septimius Severus. And then, of course, you had Severus's invasion of Parthia sometime later. And then, naturally, you had Caracalla's military intrigues in the region as well, which we're going to talk about here quite a bit. And in 208, significant internal strife was beginning to plague Parthia. With the death of King the V, his eldest son, Volagases VI, naturally succeeded him. However, Volagases VI's younger brother, Artabanus V, led a campaign of sedition and rebellion to his elder brother's rule. And Emperor Caracalla of Rome tasted opportunity on the wind.
0: So how aware of the uh, clashing of domestic dangers presented by Abishir and at the time?
1: That's hard to tell. Caracalla knew about the civil war that had broken out between the brothers in terms of succession and who was going to rule the Parthians. Mm. However, the penny didn't drop until much later and after the Sassanids had truly gained power in what was then become the former Parthian Empire did the Romans realize they had a a big new issue on their hands. So I'm sure they had some inkling of it. Obviously, some information was going their way, but how much of it eventually ended up at the top with the major decision makers in Rome seems to be very little at this point. Certainly nothing that they took real action for and nothing you can really discern from that, they were acting upon at the time. So, it's a valid question, and it's certainly something that's going to be very relevant in our next episode. So, now we bring Rome into the equation because Rome has a major presence in the Middle East, Greater Roman Syria. They obviously have controlled Egypt for a few centuries now, and they're always butting heads with the Parthians over the extended period in which they were neighboring and rivaling territories in that region of the roman empire and the world
0: sounds like a good time for Rome to pounce
1: well you're thinking like caracalla (laughs) is thinking and that scares me a little bit uh yeah we have a secret machiavellian among us folks and it isn't paul so as always rome had its fingers in many pies strategically And one of the perennial pies, of course, was Rome's ongoing rivalry with Parthia. And this would definitely serve as a major external factor in further weakening Parthia itself. As mentioned prior, the Severans had a personal history with the Parthians, to say the least. Especially when you're talking about backing Niger in the succession struggle, and then, of course, Severus actually invading Parthia after that. This sort of fell into the hands of Caracalla. And so, according to Cassius Dio, it appeared that Caracalla, in addition to his campaigns against Central European Germanic tribes, was looking to pick a fight with Parthia, and sought to capitalize on their domestic struggle. And he took the following steps. Caracalla wished to incorporate Armenia and Osroene into the Roman Empire. Both of those kingdoms had served as pawns in the greater strategic power struggle between Rome and Parthia. And I believe Rome and Armenia, they first came into contact somewhere around the 6th century BC. Mm -hmm. So they have, at this point, an extended relationship. Both of those powers served as buffer states between Rome and Parthia, and over time had fallen under each of their respective spheres of influence back and forth by diplomatic agreement with Rome vis-a-vis Parthia, and then, of course, bringing in Armenian and Osrazine into that equation. And so, as a razor-thin Casus Belli, Caracalla deposed the Osroene king Abgar X for supposedly ruling his people too harshly. <laughs> Abgar was imprisoned, and Azrain was formally indoctrinated into the Roman Empire. In some ways, Caracalla liberated the people yeah. of Osroene. And then, of course, three years later, Caracalla enacted a ruse where he offered to mediate a conflict in Armenia between King Khosrab I and his sons. And then upon meeting them, Caracalla imprisoned them like he did King Abgar X. And in doing so, this actually ignited a popular revolt against Rome by the people of Armenia. So Mm -hmm. this wasn't exactly a popular move. And one of the big issues here, and one of the reasons why this was so provocative in the case of Parthia, in terms of Rome's actions, is that at the point via prior diplomatic agreement with Rome and Parthia, both of those satellite buffer states were considered to be within Parthia's sphere of influence— So basically, Rome was doing something very provocative that very much violated their prior agreement with the Parthians. So if you're looking at it from Caracalla's perspective, it was a safer way of becoming more provocative and hopefully igniting the conflict that he apparently seemed to want so much head-to-head with Parthia. Mm -hmm. And all of this happened in the case of Azurain. That happened in 214. And then in the case of what he did in Armenia, it's believed to happen around 216, and it, that uprising in Armenia went past 217, which is actually when Caracalla died. Mm. And what's interesting here is that starting about 214, 215, Caracalla would actually remain in the Middle East for the remainder of his rule and set up a de facto capital at Antioch. It was his working capital this is an interesting point because this is a part of what I would call the evolution of the role of the emperor in case of Rome. So going back to Marcus Aurelius, Marcus actually set an interesting precedent, which is that when it came to campaigns, the emperor, even if it's not an emperor with tremendous military prowess or even military experience, which Mm -hmm. in the case we know with Marcus Aurelius, he was not a military man. They were in a position where the emperor was not considered appropriate to leave defensive campaigns merely in the hands of generals on the scene. And specifically when you're launching an offensive campaign, that it was entirely expected at this point that the emperor would be present on the ground. So (laughs) it makes all the sense in the world that Caracalla would then decide, okay, I'm going out there for an extended period of time. I'm setting up shop in Antioch. And this is what we're going to do. As I mentioned, it really appears that Caracalla's parent desires was to fight Parthia head on and saw any excuse that might justify war.
0: It just feels like maybe Rome and Parthia have been butting heads for so long. And Caracalla thought this might be it. This might be the moment we could actually take them out. Like he just seems like ravenous to do it. He feels like I could be the person who takes out Parthia once and for all. Maybe he wanted that claim. That's why it's so ravenous to get this done.
1: It's as plausible a motivation an as idea. any. Yeah. And when it comes to Caracalla's rule, it's interesting. He didn't really have that much interest in the more mundane administrative and political issues of the empire that would generally fall under the providence of a ruling emperor. In fact, he usually left most of that business to his mother.
0: That's interesting. We're talking about matriarchal sort of societies in um with Elagabalus. Yes. There's another sort of example of that as well there. Yeah. you wouldn't expect it in Rome.
1: So Caracalla left a lot of that up to his mother. But he really, really did dig undertaking military campaigns. And in this case, picking the fight with Parthia very much falls under that umbrella of motivation. Mm. So his first shot at a Casus Belli, which failed, might I add, came in the form of a demand to extradite Two Roman fugitives in Parthia, Tiridates, an Armenian prince who would go on to rule Armenia after Caracalla's death, as well as a philosopher, Anticus. And initially, Volagases VI, the eldest son of the father, <clears throat> initially refused this demand. Yet when his older brother Artabanus wrestled power away, he actually granted caracalla's request and doing so it stamped out caracalla's desired (sighs) justification for war in many ways you know this is it's dark but he made the decision that he felt was in the best interest of his people and his power yeah but caracalla was not yet finished he was going to have his war and later he demanded a request to marry artabanus's daughter which Artabanus refused, at which case, war was on.
0: That's what it took to start a war.
1: <laughs> Over time, we've seen it so far in what we've covered, and we're going to see it a whole lot more going forward. It is truly baffling the kind of reasons and justifications that various rulers will use as a casus belli to start a war. And a refusal for marriage is... <laughs> Really, one of the more interesting ones. But one of the biggest reasons why he refused this request is because he was afraid that in having that marriage occur, it would give Rome a stronger means to dictate and influence Parthia itself. And I don't think that was something that is necessarily an unjustified concern. Even though, as we know, especially when we're talking about European monarchs and having marriages that strengthen certain royal families of certain countries with others don't always work out quite in that way. Obviously Parthia was very, very concerned
0: that it would. caracalla never actually wanted to marry this daughter, did he? He wanted he wanted a refusal just to justify war. Like if he went, yeah, go and marry her, like what would have happened then?
1: That's my general conclusion as well. Yeah. And it's kind of hard to imagine otherwise, but to use a term It's on.
0: Yeah, it's on. (laughs) War's happening.
1: Oh, yeah. And when this war broke out, Caracalla presided over a campaign of mass destruction against Parthia. This wasn't just soldiers and legions and armies fighting each other, even though the whole concept and values and morality and ethics around the treatment of non-combatants obviously is different than what we've understood them and what we like to think is proper in this day and age, but he threw this out the window. To use a term in German, he was waging a campaign that would, might be called the War of Annihilation, which is actually exactly how Hitler described the upcoming mm-hmm. war in the East against the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. which was different in many respects than the other wars that had been fought up to that point. Everybody drink. Paul just referenced World War II. (laughs) So he was undergoing this campaign of mass destruction, and he was destroying cities, killing soldiers, the elderly, women, children. It was an absolute disgrace. As this war continued on, and as ruthless as it was, it did not sit well with everybody that was under Caracalla's command. And a member of his own coterie, which I actually think were also some of his men for personal protection, actually assassinated him. And remember how I was teasing earlier exactly how this happened?
0: hmm Yes, you were.
1: <laughs> the thing that's interesting about this, and I can't even make this up, <laughs> he murdered him while they were stopped on the side of the road And while Caracalla was taking a piss, (laughs) he murdered him midstream.
0: (laughs) That's a way to go.
1: That is a ridiculous way to go. It worked.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: But that's not exactly what I I would call the the most gallant and honorable death that has ever occurred in a military campaign. But undeniably, because it's human nature and warfare is chaotic... I'm absolutely certain he is not the only one to have gone in such a fashion, if not worse, in such a situation.
0: Yeah, like, and also you got your guard down when you're peeing. Like, fair play. I don't, I think I'm not really paying attention to that sort of thing while I'm having a wee.
1: <laughs> no, no, I'm curious to see what Sun Tzu might have said about that or Sao yeah, yeah.
0: I don't think they wrote, wrote about that in The Art of War.
1: My only guess is if that were the covert operation. At the end of the day, all you can say is, well, it worked. You did what you wanted to do, and it makes for a hell of a story. So they knock off Caracalla midstream. Though there were initial negotiations after this occurred to end the conflict, the Romans were unwilling to meet Parthian demands, which basically were to oversee and finance the rebuilding of everything they had destroyed up to that point. Talking about a big price tag and for Rome to shoulder it in its entirety. You know, if we're being fair, does kind of seem to be not inappropriate, but at that time, something that the Romans were not willing to accept. And so, war continued. But in the continuing campaign, the Parthians eventually got it together. And Roman forces and Parthian forces basically came to a stalemate, at which case, within the next year, they did come to an agreement. And I believe, if I remember correctly, that the indemnity that Rome agreed to pay to Parthia hmm. was something like 50 million denarii to basically conclude the peace agreement. And, and the fact that it came with peace allowed Rome to sell it not as a, a conditional armistice, but instead a, a genuine peace And because it came in such a formalized diplomatic style. Politics, politics, mm. politics, you know, yeah. all, all about appearance and presentation. There is no question Parthia was well and truly damaged by their harrowing conflict against the Roman invaders, but nor was their civil war even complete
0: yet. Did Rome have any meaningful knowledge about the Sassians' conquest or knew anything significant about their design on Parth about their desires for Parthia?
1: This is kind of what I I would say is a a related sub-question to the one you were asking Mm. earlier. But in terms of motivation, I do not know that the Romans, even on the ground at that point, in the same kind of general portion of the world, even though where the Sassanids come from, I don't believe was actually all that close to where the fighting was was occurring, Mm. that they knew that there was some kind of upcoming challenge there. But at the same time, it didn't really matter too much to them. They had their own issues to deal with at that point in time. But once again, the whole Sassanid rise is going to catch the Romans with their britches down. It's going to be something to see yeah. in the next episode. Yeah. <laughs> so this brings us now to the Sassanids and one Ardashir I. This is the third power, the one that is about to explode mm-hmm. onto the scene the I and his early life are a general mystery to most scholars. However, it's believed that he was born about circa 180 AD in Persis, which is about modern-day southwestern Iran. The prevailing belief is that Adashir I was the son of the vassal king of Persis, known as Patak, which was part of the Sassian family. Though there are stories and speculations that Adashir may have been adopted by Paytak, or that Paytak was some kind of more distant family member who had Adashir in his care. They're not hundred percent sure, but in general it's believed that the I was Paytak's progeny. And Paytak was the ruling nobility over a fiefdom in Persis, and he owed allegiance to Artabanus as his Parthian emperor. Yeah. When Paytak died, Adashir's elder brother took the throne as he was ahead in the line of succession, as you would expect. Yeah, makes sense. It's unclear the exact dating and specific course of events that followed because there are some reports that are kind of conflicting depending on the source. However, Adashir managed to kill and depose his recently installed older brother as the ruling noble of Persis himself in 212 AD, just roughly around the same time as Septimius de Severus's death and Caracalla coming to power in Rome, who was dealing with his own brother at a power succession, <laughs> as we mentioned prior.
0: I know you said that the series of events aren't as known here, but did he actually kill him personally or get people to kill him? Do we know that at all? That's an
1: interesting detail that I don't know. Okay, just curious. But it's a legit question. It's a good question, but for all intents and purposes, the important part, is that his older brother was dead.
0: Yeah, it's it's quite a lot to kill your own older brother with like your, with your like yourself. That's quite it's quite a thing to do. Shows how power-hungry someone is.
1: It certainly is. And once again, we talk about the theme of opportunity here.
0: Yeah, that's a prime opportunity.
1: Not just opportunity, but bold and vicious action to capitalize and make the most of these opportunities where there is a limited window of possibility to undertake the ambitions that, in this case, Adashir the First had. And because Parthia was so embroiled in its own civil war, and then an extensive and devastating conflict with the Romans, it provided him an opportunity to begin conquering neighboring territories and fiefdoms Hmm. near Persis. Because there wasn't a whole heck of a lot either of the two ruling brothers in Parthia could do, because they were busy fighting each other. And when they weren't busy fighting each other, they were busy getting their rear ends kicked by the Romans and really just a terrible conflict. So once again, opportunity on the part of Adashir the first.
0: So the Sassanid Empire, it really grew on the inside, didn't it? It wasn't like another empire took over Parthia. It's kind of just this thing that evolved from within.
1: It is a yeah. domestic power that is seeking to basically seize the reins of power. This was very much a, an internal Parthian yeah. matter. We get to 224 at this point. And as I described when setting the scene, in the case of the Battle of Har when he defeated Ardabinus the VI, Adashir took on the title of Shahanshah, which translates into the King of Kings. And I'm curious, do you have any sort of etymological insight into Shahanshah? Is this something, is that a title you've been familiar with in all of your linguistic and name explain explorations?
0: Um, it kind of does ring a bell I'm not sure where from exactly it's definitely quite fun to say I don't think I could say it myself it's definitely a really cool title I understand why he took it over but in regards to names was the Sassian Empire or the assassinated as we been calling them is that what they called themselves
1: no so hmm. in this case Adashir and his father Paytak come from the Sassian family and Paytak's father was I believe was called Sasan. What's interesting, though, is the name Sasan is actually a major deity in a religion known as Zoroastrianism. One of the things that Adashir sought to do, because like any new ruler who's creating their own dynasty and and is building up a power that falls exclusively under the dominion of their rule and the rule of their family they're always looking to create a narrative that somehow justifies their claim to assuming the position that they are in. And Adashir was no different in this case. And so, naturally, when you're talking about this, Zoroastrianism, and this is an interesting aside, it's Hmm. quite important, is one of the oldest religions that's actually still being practiced today. I I can't get into a great deal of detail about it because I don't know a great deal about Zoroastrianism, but they still exist today. They're still practicing. And kind of an interesting note here is anytime you're hearing comments from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia today, when they're referring to Iran, they'll occasionally sling some mud at them, which they're always (laughs) slinging mud at each other, but that's a topic for another day. One of the things that they will call them are fire worshippers, which is a case of connotation that's quite pejorative. And it refers to Zoroastrianism. But when they're saying it, of course, they're doing it with the connotation that they're just a bunch of bar- barbarians that are are still worshiping, you know, the yeah, you know, yeah, fundamental powers of, of nature, like you would imagine, yeah. stereotypically, people from the ancient ancient past worshiping fire. You you, you get the yeah. idea. But Zoroastrian still completely. exists today. And Sasan is one of the major deities. And the idea here is that Adashir and the Sasan family are directly related to this deity and that by virtue of that lineage, Adashir and his family can establish the Sasanid Empire. And that's largely what he did. But as far as calling them the Sassanids, or in this case, more accurately, in the case of the Romans, the Sassanid Persians, this is where I'm talking about when I talk about Cassius Dio and I'm talking about Herodian. So this is kind of like what we're talking about briefly off mic and pre-roll, which is, did they consider themselves the heir or like rightful successors to the amazing legacy of the Achaemenid Empire and folks like Cyrus the Great, who we mentioned briefly actually all the way back in our first episode which is worth listening if you haven't heard it already, if this is your first time or you've just been dabbling. And the answer to that, as far as the Sassanids were concerned, is no. In fact, there's debate as Mm. to whether how much they actually knew about the Achmed at that time. But we were talking about kind of holes in the gaps of the Greco-Roman histories of what's happening here with Cassius Dio and Herodian. And they certainly do consider them to be a proper successor to the Achaemenids, mm. which is fascinating. It really is. And, you, and one of the reasons you can tell this is that they refer to Adashir as, I believe, Attaxerxes. So you, you see where I'm going with this. Mm. And in its own way, that's actually a tremendous compliment because the Romans at that time, certainly Cassius Dio and, and Herodian would have known, the amazing legacy and some of the more salient and important aspects of the Achaemenid empire not that it was necessarily common knowledge but in the case of cassius dio who's writing something like 80 volumes of the history of the roman empire yeah not likely something that's going to escape his attention
0: i almost wonder as you sort of mentioned about mudslinging i wonder if referring to them as just a continuation of this other empire was a way to downplay their importance oh you're the Rome could have been like you are not a new thing you're just you're just them again like i wonder if it was maybe that was some sort of intention to underplay what a big deal this new emerging empire was to just think oh, they're not new they're just the same thing again
1: that's an interesting take
0: <laughs> just a, it's literally just a take
1: no no it's it's an interesting take it's not actually something i considered because it, the legacy of the achamenids and somebody like cyrus the great still rings true and significant to this day okay, they yeah. were a great power yeah It'd be like, say, a couple hundred years down the road and saying, you know, you're a continuation of the United Kingdom or you're a continuation of (laughs) France.
0: It comes to prestige.
1: (laughs) You get the idea. Yeah. So I think it's entirely possible what you're referring to is the case. Mm. I would also wonder why they didn't refer to the Parthians in the same way, as far as I know.
0: So you mentioned a rather unique form of governance the Parthians had and uh, did the Sassanid Empire did they carry on that form of governing or did they bring their, bring their own thing to the table? Okay,
1: this is important. So in this case I would, from what I know in terms of this, this structure in regards to the Parthians to some extent it was continued under the Sassanids because there was an element of practicality to that especially when you're talking about Centralized authority. Centralized authority is usually only realistically possible as an effective form of governance if you have timely communication. Mm -hmm. Really, in order to be able to direct greater events from a single epicenter, a focal point of power, you really do need to be able to communicate directives in a very expeditious way in order to control what you're trying to do, or else things can become very discombobulated very quickly, especially when you're dealing with directing events and powers and forces and means and resources in the way somebody at the top of such a power would ultimately do if we're talking about true centralized authority. So from a point of practicality, they didn't come in and create this pure centralized authority. One is because you still had that tradition, that, that kind of inborn nomadic legacy in there. From what mm-hmm. I understand, some of the differences, though, is that under the Parthians, these provinces that exercised sovereignty were actually a bit smaller. In the case of the Sassanids, apparently they got a bit larger. Mm-hmm. And Adashir also brought in the ruling nobles of those provinces ...into the Sassanid, so he didn't, from what I understand, undertake some great purge... ...to really stack the deck politically to allow him to do exactly what he wanted to do. But it does seem as if, one, Adashir did have a stronger hand... ...and, two, brought an energy and aggressiveness and a momentum... ...that very much marshaled those that would fall under Sassanid rule... Especially in the beginning, in the way that it did. And for all intents and purposes, they would expand some. Like, for example, if I remember correctly, they do eventually start taking out, well, I would say more absorbing, like little pieces of, like, say, the cushions. And Mm. they obviously had to have a decent relationship in order to continue to coexist and everything that goes along with that. Yeah. Additionally, of course they're going to end up becoming a significant thorn in the side of Rome in continuation for centuries, even when we're talking about the Byzantines, where this conflict becomes a lot more localized based on the geography.
0: They're going to outlast Rome, aren't they, in some ways, I suppose. They're definitely going to outlast uh, the Western Roman Empire.
1: In this case, the Byzantines will, in the case of the Eastern Roman Empire, will outlast the Sassanids, because Mm. the Sassanids get about 400 years before the Muslim conquests. But it is interesting to consider. So in this case, he, he really does bring a lot more energy. He really does marshal the resources, and he takes a lot of time and energy and concern in creating that narrative which justifies his claim and the claim of his family as the dynastic ruling power. And in our next episode, because it directly is connected to the utter shit show that's going to be the crisis of the 3rd century, the way that the Sassanids make themselves known to the Romans is going to be in truly epic fashion. In addition to next time, I do want to talk a little bit more about Adashir, because he's actually a rather interesting fellow. And so we'll work that into our next episode, which you most certainly should catch, because... This is going to be a great story, and it's one that we're both really excited about. But essentially, the, the Sassanids, they considered themselves what they called themselves was not the Sassanids, but their actual title, what they called themselves as a civilization, as a power, was the King of Kings. And then, of course, you have the Shan Hasha, who was the King of Kings as its ruler. Mm-hmm. Adashir I, moving forward and creating a bit more of a common identity for those that lived in their borders but just in general we are going to talk more about the sassanids and how they ruled and what it was like and what they're going to become in the next episode especially vis-a-vis the roman empire in the upcoming crisis of the third century which begins in our next episode
0: and that is something i am so looking forward to paul i'm looking forward to you uh, telling me a story like this. this is what i did with china over a few episodes i'm looking forward to hearing This story player and the Sassanids are here. It's safe to say, you know, they're here now, and I'm looking forward to interesting. You're saying how they make themselves apparent to Rome. Is there any a slight hint you can tell us about how that happens? Is a a little bit of a teaser.
1: We talk about the successor of Elagabus, who obviously was much more suited for the role. But what I can tell you is that in this upcoming episode, and with Rome about to be caught with its britches down, to use a dated term. (laughs) he is going to learn a lesson from the encounter in question that he will never forget, and neither will the Romans, because it is an introduction that is going to echo for some time to come. And I can very, very much say that this encounter on the part of the Sassanids was absolutely brutal memorable, and truly dynamic in their seizing opportunity that is literally staring them right in the face.
0: I look forward to hearing about that, Paul.
1: And I'll also say because the crisis of the third century has so many nuances and complexities and elements to it that it's not going to be just I who am telling it. This is something where I'm most definitely going to be calling upon you as well. And we're not going to be doing this to the exclusion of everything else, believe me. This is a world history podcast. Mm. But just like China and the fall of the Han Dynasty, we're looking at headline news. So there's a lot to look forward to here. I'm really excited about it. We hope you're really excited about it. And it's going to be a wonderful time in its own way.
0: This is going to be a really interesting time for sure. This crisis of the first century, the Sassanids. It's going to be exciting. <laughs> that's, that's my word. Absolutely.
1: And like I said, in this upcoming episode, we're also going to get more into Adashir first, more about who he was and how he did business. But as far as today is concerned, what we have seen is an event of tremendous significance That is going to change the course of world history, especially in the Middle East, in ways that will echo for centuries to come. But with that, us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from A.D. Take it away, Anna.
2: This is the A.D. History Podcast.
1: Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us?
0: You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT, but you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT, and of course on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my
1: usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD and History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description.
0: That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care.
1: Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time.
2: Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast, it is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at AD History Podcast at TGNreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com/slash AD History Podcast. For Paul and Patrick. Thank you for listening to the A.D. History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.